It is a um, joyful and sober time that we are blessed to have, that we can acknowledge God's presence with us and amongst us, and particularly at this a critical time in our service as we prepare our hearts to receive God's word and feel confident to bring our cares to him and know that that he cares for us. As I pray this morning, I pray that you would be praying also that our prayers will go up together as we seek the Lord's face, for without him, we can surely do nothing. May we bow our heads and pray, please. Father and our everlasting portion, as the hymnist says, more than life to me. We approach your throne not in a cavalier way, but with such anticipation and intention because we we know as the another hymnist has said, we need you every hour. Some with our heads bowed in humble repose and others with heads lifted to heaven. But Lord, all of our eyes are upon you. We first give you thanks for the countless blessings that you have freely and graciously given to us. Blessings that are obvious and those less obvious. Yet they all come from you, gladly and without favor. And for all of these, we give you thanks. Father, as you have been and continue to be gracious to us, your people, help us to live graciously. And forgive us of our impatience or anger that often seemingly gives us a license to take from you your blessings without being thankful. Lord, forgive us of our ingratitude. Savior, help us not to be unfair or unkind in our words or in our ways or to have greater expectations of others than we have of ourselves. Keep us from appearing to be demanding or unforgiving, but to be gentle in spirit. I pray that we would honestly acknowledge the sin in our own lives before judging others, and we would not grow comfortable with our sins that we would actively work by your holy power to overcome them. O oh God, I pray and I thank you for the optimism of the young and the hope of our adults. 
for the strength of the young and the wisdom of adults. Savior and friend, your fingerprints are all over our lives. Forgive us for acting as if you don't exist. Your angels are dispatched all around us. Our homes while we slumbered and slept. Our schools and places of business to protect us. Forgive us for accusing you of not caring or being negligent. Good Shepherd, you stayed the hand of our adversary. Surely you are our defender. And while we peacefully slept, our adversary filled, filed petitions in the courts of heaven. You are our advocate. And for this we say thank you for peace and protection. O shepherd of our souls, some of us can say I was once young and are now now facing life transitions. The laughter of a full house is absent. The chatter of children is silent. The noise around the dinner table is reduced to a memory. Father, would you give to us, your people, the courage to be hopeful, to not dwell on the past with with its failed promises and mistakes, or even our proud accomplishments and fond memories, but help us by your powerful spirit to look forward, to grasp life's new challenges for which you have prepared us and to use the wisdom of life's past experiences to move forward. I pray also this morning, Lord, for our men who are challenged in their work and are questioning their self-worth, whose confidence is waning, and for spouses who are finding it ever more challenging to manage resources that are not there. Father, send reinforcement from heaven. O Lord, invigorate us and help us like Moses to lean on you, O staff of life. Help us, teach us to trust you. And God, we pray for our sisters and brothers who have been called to care for dependent or special children. Kind sir, you know their unique challenges and their specific needs. Yet in your infinite wisdom, you have chosen this path for their lives. We pause to thank you, O giver of life, for the special talent and gifts you have given to these parents, our sisters and brothers, for this task. May we ask that you bless them with added grace increased strength, faithful courage, helpful friends, and just when they need it, your peace. O God, our God, I pray for our children and young people who are beginning another school year. Master, would you calm their fears and ease their anxieties? Please help those transitioning into new schools and different environments 
to find that you have gone before them and prepared the way. Lord, please place others in their path who will guide them through this time of adjustment. Friend above all friends, would you give them the comfort of new and lasting friendships? We pray for their encouragement and growth, both academically and spiritually. Lord, please keep them from negative peer pressure, and may your Holy Spirit govern their behavior. Keep them from harm, and for our teens especially, protect them from the temptation of inappropriate relationships. May you, O oh Lord, give these your children, our children and young people, the courage to face this challenge confidently and courageously. Lord, we pray for our homeschooling families, for our parents who have made great sacrifices of time and effort. Lord, let the desired outcome be realized. May our parent teachers be equipped for every good work with skill and humility. May they possess knowledge and patience, wisdom and humility, that their children may not become exasperated but encouraged, not discouraged but empowered. We pray, O oh Lord, for all of our families that if there be any deficiency in funds or faith, resources, or resolve that you would make up the difference. Comforter and friend, now prepare our hearts for the preaching of your word, that we may grow by it. And if there be someone who does not know you as Savior, may they find the call of this gracious gospel irresistible. We pray and ask these things in the name above all names, and to the praise of his glorious grace, our Savior and Lord, heaven's help and our only hope. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You'll notice in your bulletins this morning that uh, Pastor Darwin is beginning a sermon series called Being the Body of Christ. And we are beginning that study, as you can see, in three separate books. Isaiah chapter 43, beginning in verse 12. 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 9. And Colossians chapter 3, verse 12. If you're using that blue uh, pew Bible, Isaiah chapter 43, verse 12 begins on page 604. And while you're looking that up, let me tell you that First Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 9, begins on page 1015. 604, 1015. And then the last uh, uh, book we're going to be looking at is Colossians chapter 3, beginning in verse 12, on page 984. 984. <clears throat> Hear the reading of God's word, Isaiah chapter 43, verse 12. I declared and saved and proclaimed when there was no strange God among you, and you are my witnesses, declares the Lord. I am God. 
Also, henceforth, I am He. There is none who can, deli- who can deliver from My hand. I work, and who can turn it back? Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. For your sake I send to Babylon and bring them all down as fugitives, even the Chaldeans in the ships in which they rejoice. I am the Lord, your Holy One, the Creator of Israel, your King. Thus says the Lord who makes a way in the sea, a path in the mighty waters, who brings forth chariot and horse, army and warrior. They lie down. They cannot rise. They are extinguished, quenched like a wick. Remember not the former things, nor consider the things of old. Behold, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. The wild beast will honor me, the jackals and the ostriches, for I give water in the wilderness, rivers in the desert to give drink to my chosen people, the people whom I formed for myself, that they might declare my praise. Page 1015, 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. And finally, Colossians chapter 3, verse 12 on page 984. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has to complain against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father, through him. And may the Holy Spirit speak to our hearts this morning through our dear brother. And may God's name ever be praised. Amen.
Let me begin this morning uh, with a quote. Truly, we face a vicious attack from powerful enemies in high places. And yet, in the midst of the battle, we are very blessed. Despite the war, we can give thanks. We constitute the greatest nation on the face of the earth. She is, in fact, the greatest empire that has ever existed. Truly, the last great hope of mankind. We enjoy a degree of justice and liberty, prosperity and peace beyond the imagination of any other people. We have an unsurpassed heritage, boasting of many of the greatest thinkers, artists, and leaders in all of human history. You probably get it that the writer, Peter Lightheart is not talking about the United States of America. He's talking about the Church of Jesus Christ. We are the holy nation of God. We are the place by God's grace. And as we follow his word of justice and liberty and true spiritual prosperity and peace, we are in his hand the last, the only hope of mankind because we have the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is something of who we are as the people of God. But is this your daily identity as a human being? Is it, is it mine? Is this your identity as a Christian? As you may know, the term church in the New Testament is ecclesia, which means those called out, called out ones, or the ones called forth, the gathered ones. You get this in the First Peter passage that we read, right? Called out of darkness into light. And if he's so called us out, we want to ask the question, who and what are we and what are we supposed to do? You see an engine part sitting in front of you and your question, you've never seen it before, and your question is, well, what is that? And what does it do? I remember one time seeing this contraption. I was introduced to it and I didn't have any idea what it was. And then I find out it's an apple peeler. You know, it has a blade on this end, a little po- uh, a, a stob on this end. And so sure enough, you put the granny apple onto it. You start cranking it. It peels it. It cores it. It even slices it so that when you get it out, it's like a little accordion all nicely sliced out. One chop down the middle, apple pie. Right? <laughs> so cool. But we ask this question of ourselves, what kind of contraption are we? What are we? What are we supposed to be doing? What are we made for as the people of God? For many of us as Christians, our identity stops right there with that word. Who and what are you? You say, I'm a Christian. I belong to Christ. I serve Christ. I seek to manifest Christ. And many times there's no we in our self-identity. It's just what I am, what I am with God, what I am with Christ. And sometimes there's a good motive behind that. Uh, We're used to people saying in the past decades of Christianity, I'm a member of so-and-so church, but you're wondering, yeah, you are, but are you a Christian, right? I mean, a real Christian, a born-again Christian, Bible-believing Christian, not just a Christian in the sense of I go to church or I belong to a church, and that's as far as it goes, 
Do you trust Jesus as your personal Savior? But in our emphasizing the sincerity of our faith in that way, we tend to individualize our faith. And I want to challenge you that your identity must be corporate identity. It must be. It must include your relationship to Christ's body, what is called in Scripture the family or household of God, what is called in Scripture the church of God that belongs to Him, that is founded by Him, that is sustained by Him. To answer that question, who are you, to say, I am a member of the body of Jesus Christ. I am a member of the household of God. I am a part of the dwelling place of God, the temple of God. I am a part of the bride of Christ. That's who I am. Is that your self-identity? Is that who you know yourself to be? Does that impinge upon your life? Does it govern your life in some way and and, and, uh, constitute how you live and condition how you live. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, 27, now you are, you all, Alabama, Texas, Louisiana, y'all are the body of Christ and individually members of it. So this is the name that God calls you himself. This is who you are. I declare you to be this. I constitute you this. I make you this. And so, what does it mean then, if we are the body of Christ, what does it mean to be the body of Christ? And that's what we're asking in this series, being the body of Christ. Like with the apple peeler, what kind of contraption are we? (laughs) And what do you do with it? What is it supposed to do? So, we're going to look at this under three headings, as indicated in your bulletin, reaching up. Reaching in and reaching out. Now, these are related to our vision statement. Our vision statement, nurturing a joy for loving God and loving people. So, nurturing a joy for loving God, that's reaching up. For loving people, reaching in and reaching out. Okay? And so, we begin today with reaching up. And I want to start this with an outline used in Mike Cosper's book called Rhythms of Grace that's about worship. And he has one chapter entitled 123, Worship 123, okay? The one is this, one author and one object of our worship. One author and one object of our worship. Two, two contexts for our worship. We worship as a gathered people, And we worship as a scattered people, okay? So two contexts. Then the three are three audiences. And this, we usually think of it's only God that's our audience. We have one audience. Now, we have one object who is receiving our praise, but he's not the only audience. He's our audience We ourselves are an audience, as we read just now in Colossians, that we are to be admonishing one another in hymns, uh, psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Or as it says in Hebrews chapter 10, which we'll deal with later, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together. And he says that we must 
assemble together so that we can encourage one another to love and good deeds. Almost as that the whole result, the whole point of our worship is this mutual encouragement to love and good deeds. Of course, that takes in everything that worship is, but he's calling the whole in terms of what the final result must be, that we're encouraged to live out our love to others. And so we are an audience. And then finally, we'll see that the world itself is an audience of our praise. We, don't, we tend to think it doesn't matter how the world responds to us. It doesn't matter uh, what the world thinks of our worship. And yet Paul can say in 1 Corinthians 14 that our worship should be such, so intelligible, so coherent and clear that an unbeliever can be in our midst and fall down on his face and say, surely God is among you. He is against the speaking of tongues in such a way so that an unbeliever wouldn't understand and that we must speak in a way that is intelligible and clear to unbelievers because they are an audience and we are called to speak to that audience even in our worship. And we'll get to the audiences uh, next week, but we are going to talk about one author and object of worship who is God And then our two contexts of worship, the gathered church and the scattered church. So, one author of our worship and one object. We, as we've said already, as the ecclesia, the called out church, we're called, as Peter says, out of darkness into his marvelous light in order to proclaim his excellencies. He, by His power, has constituted us and defined us as a new people. Called in this context means powerfully and effectively brought us out of darkness into His light. It's His doing from beginning to end. His initiative, His plan, His accomplishment. We're only here, only here, because of the sovereign act of God to call us out of darkness into his light. He is the sole initiator of true worship. The only initiator of true worship. He found us here and he brought us here by his sovereign power. That's what Peter is saying. And we see his sovereignty expressed so wonderfully in the Isaiah passage that we read. Having giving us the image of God in the Red Sea, that he made the path to the sea and he destroyed God's enemies so that God's people would be safe. He says, I am that God and I do a powerful work. I'm the Holy One. I'm the creator of all things. And I am forming a people for myself that they may declare my praise. I form them. He's speaking in the language of the creator of the universe And the one who parts the Red Sea, he's speaking in terms of the actual person who runs everything. And he says, I am my sovereign power power will create and form a people for my own praise. And the object in both of these passages is so similar, right? I form a people for myself that they may declare my praise. Or as Peter puts it, 
brought out of darkness into light so that we can proclaim the excellencies of the one who has called us out of darkness into his light. And this is, it, it, it seems on the one hand, self-serving of God, right? Of course, God is the great object, the center, the creator of all things. He has dwelled in infinite glory forever and has the right to all glory because he is the creator of all things. He's the redeemer of his people. And so it is right and good and proper that we should give him glory, but it is also our joy and satisfaction that we should glorify his name. It is for our unlimited good that he would redeem us to bring us into his praises. He frees us from our bondage to idols, our bondage to self, to the empty vanities which we're seeking to gain life from, to fix our hearts on His unlimited beauty and majesty and goodness. You could say that we were in the dungeon of self, the crippled vision of our own closed-in idolatries. And He released us from that Poison. He released us from that disease, from the cancer of idolatry to free us to walk in the increasing satisfaction and health of adoring Him. It is the greatest act of goodness and kindness to you that God would release you from idolatries to fix your heart on His goodness. That is the great tragedy horrific nature of our sin is that we do not adore God for which we were made. Paul Tripp talks about this in terms of marriage. In his book, What Did You Expect? I love the title of that, right? (laughs) A book on marriage, What Did You Expect? And the book is about our expectations that everything's going to be pretty good when things get really bad. We discover how bent in upon ourselves we are. And he talks in this book about how critical it is that we move out of ourselves to worship God. And it's two people who are worshiping God and submitting themselves to this gracious God who can look outside of themselves and pour themselves out for one another. And he puts it this way, God pries us out of the stultifying confines of the kingdom of self so that we can be free to luxuriate in the big sky glories of God. That's a cool way to put it. The big sky glory. My my mother moved from West Texas to Northeast Alabama when she was quite a young woman after marrying my father, who was in the service, was uh, stationed in West Texas. And she said, I felt like I was driving in caves everywhere in North Alabama. Because as you know, if you've been up there, all there is are trees. You can't see anything past those trees right there. Now, some people get there and say, oh, look at all these beautiful trees. There's just one. They're everywhere. She said, and people say when they come out to Texas, there's nothing there. She says, 
you can see everything in Texas, you know. And, and I got that feeling out here, the big sky, you know. You could see so far instead of this little hole looking through the trees, you know, out in North. And there's its own beauty, of course, in Northeast Alabama. But that's a, a, a great picture here to luxuriate in the big sky glories of God. You see, it's a restoration of your humanity that he would plant you into his worship, into his adoration. Because we were made in the image of God. We were made in this special way out of all creation to know God, to lead the chorus of praise to God's glory because we're the one living creature that can recognize and know God, that can respond to God and communicate with God. The one creature made to have fellowship with God. And so our whole life was meant to be in relationship to God, oriented toward Him, directed toward Him, centered in Him, focused on Him. Our whole life was to be lived only in the context of God, only in reference to God, in full dependence upon God, in full delight in God, in total regard for Him, all for His purposes. This was our liberty, our satisfaction, our joy, and we walked away from it. We destroyed ourselves. We amputated ourselves from what we were meant to be, to be those focused and fixed upon the beauty of God. Because that's what you are. That's how noble a creature you are. You must feed on His glory. You must worship Him to be what you are as a human being. In 2 Samuel 4, we read a tragic little story of Jonathan's son, Mephibosheth, who when Jonathan and Saul were killed, his nurse, realizing that the king and his son were gone and that the kingdom was going to be insecure and you don't even know what's going to happen, she ran with Mephibosheth, who was just five years old at the time. And it says that he tripped and fell, became crippled in his feet. Well, later when David came to the throne, he asked, surprisingly, you'd think he was going to vanquish all of Saul's house to make sure nobody would rise again, as most kings did. And he said, is there anybody in Saul's house that I could be kind to? You know, that the people were like, what? Kind to Saul's house? Who sought to kill you all the days of your life? who threw spears at you and almost killed... You You want to do kindness to one of his, his sons. Yes, I do. And so he called Ziba, who is Saul's servant. He said, all that belonged to Saul, he calls forth Mephibosheth into his presence. He says, everything that belonged to Saul and all of his house, I give to his grandson, Mephibosheth. And you will till the land for him. You'll bring in the produce produce for him so that your master's grandson will have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. And I want to suggest to you that you are Mephibosheth. You have been crippled in your feet by sin. You deserve God's judgment. But instead, God calls you to 
feast at his table and be one of the king's sons forever. That's what it means to get to worship him, to now feast your soul upon God. And we are so flippant about that. So flippant that God sent his only son to bear the infinite punishment of the wrath of God upon us so that the way could be opened, so that the curtain would be torn and we could walk into the Holy of Holies and behold the beauty of God and praise Him in the acceptance of God. Oh, dear brothers and sisters, God has made ultimate sacrifice so that the way could be opened that you could even come to worship Him so that you could feed your life upon the beauty of God as it's shown in the person of Jesus Christ. If you've seen the movie Schindler's List, you know that those that got on his list during World War II, he was saving Jews from extermination. And if you got on Schindler's List, then you got out of the camp into his factory taken out of the Nazi Nazi camp where they would eventually use up your body until there was nothing left, and then you'd be taken out and gassed and put to death. You may remember the scene, if you've seen it, on inspection day, which was really weeding out day, where everyone has to remove their clothes and run around the camp. And they pick out the ones who are so weak, whose bones are sticking out, who look close to being sick and dead, to to pull them out to go gas them. And here are women in their, uh, their quarters pricking their fingers to rub blood into their face so that they look like they have some energy in life, so that they will not be pulled out to be put to death. Think what it would mean to be taken out of the death camp and brought into the safety of that factory where you're protected, where you have a future and a hope. That's what God has done for you. He's taken you out of darkness, out of the death camp, out of certain judgment to bring you into the safety and well-being of God Himself where you can contemplate the beauty of God in the person of Jesus Christ and live out that beauty in your life. Called you out. And in this case, He went into the death camp. He went into the death camp and bore the death you deserved so that you could come out of the death camp. What kind of God is this who would pour his love out for you so that you could be welcomed into his presence? What do you think he has in store for you in the worship of God if he would go to this extent to open up the way of his worship? That's how costly it was. That's how important it is to God that you come to worship, that you get to worship. Only God could form us in this way. You see, as as the sovereign God, He forms us for people 
that would praise him. But you see, the formation of the people of God was done through the cross of Jesus Christ. So that the glory of that cross breaks in upon our souls and that reforms us so that we long to praise. We see the beauty and glory of God as we've never seen it, could never have seen it. It's the very revelation of Christ to us that begins the formation of us as a people that want to worship Him. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, 6, again, using language of creation like Isaiah 43 used, Paul says, the one who said, let light shine out of darkness, okay? Back in Genesis 1, let there be light. Light burst out in darkness. Paul says, that's a perfect picture of what happened to us. When he shone in our hearts to give the light, okay, here is again, a dark, assuming darkness in our heart, God shining light into our hearts, just like he shone light into creation. And what was it to do? To, so that we could see the glory of God in the face of Christ. The glory of God is attached, his beauty, the wonder of who he is as a person is attached to Jesus Christ. It comes through Jesus Christ. As one of the Puritans said, all the, uh, all the attributes of God are like played out on the stage of Jesus Christ. All the beautiful aspects of God's character, all of his glorious person are acted out in the person of Jesus Christ. And so that's what God does for us, you see? Initiating praise because he initiates the beauty and glory of Christ to us. And apart from God's powerful work of revealing His beauty to us through Christ, we could never, ever worship Him. And now our worship is the worship of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit because we worship the Father who loved us, so loved us that He sent His only Son to die for us. So we recognize He's a Father who sent His Son. That's who God is. We recognize and adore the Son as the one who loved us and gave Himself for us that He became flesh. God didn't send someone else. He came Himself to bear our punishment. And so we adore the Son. And we adore the Spirit who Paul says is now working in us together so that we would know this love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. And so in the revelation of Christ, what burst out upon us was that God is Father, Son, Holy Spirit, all acting in concert, all bent to redeem and cherish us forever. That was revealed in Christ. That's how He forms us to worship Him. That's how He reconstitutes us as people who praise Him. So all the more, though, do we say with the psalmist in Psalm 51, when as expressed in the hymn that we sang, that even though these things happen, I, I, I sometimes wane, I, I, I often become hardened even in the face of these things. Even these things can become ho-hum to me. 
And so the psalmist, after confessing his great sin, David, he says in Psalm 51, Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you've broken rejoice. Acknowledging, you see, that God is always the author of worship. He initiates worship, but He's always the one who brings about worship. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. There's a prayer for a worshiper. Or restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. And finally, in that same psalm, O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. You see, just a constant recognition, Lord, you initiated worship in my heart. You must sustain worship in my heart. Open up my lips. Give me joy of heart. Open my eyes as the psalmist prays in a different place that I may see wonderful things out of your word, out of your law. And so, in the Colossians passage that we read, he says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. It's only because of that word dwelling in us richly, the powerful word of God, that we can then encourage and admonish one another in song. It's God's initiative. And in the sister passage where it talks about the same things of psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs in Ephesians, he says it is the filling of the Spirit that brings about this kind of worship. So you and I cannot worship unless the powerful Word of God and the powerful Spirit of God bring us to the worship of God. As Adrian said in prayer, this is... This is essential for anything that we would do as the people of God. Depending upon Him, the sole author of praise, the sole author of worship that brings us to the sole object of worship, even God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And I want to close with just talking a little bit about our double context for worship. This is God carving us out, forming us, shaping us as a people to worship Him. And it's done as the gathered church, it's done as the scattered church. William Whitaker, a Puritan, wrote this, We can do nothing well without joy and a good conscience, which is the ground of joy. God brings us a good conscience as we know forgiveness. He brings about joy. And as Whitaker says, we can do nothing well without joy. So we come together to rejoice in this God, to fix our hearts and delight in the immense greatness and goodness of God in Christ Jesus. And this sustains us and trains us and nourishes us so that we can live out a life in the whole of life, live out this joy in the whole of life. So God's purpose of of grace in the gospel is to bring us into the joy of God's love and salvation and for this to condition the whole of your life, whether together or apart. This joy in Him to condition the whole of your life. And you'll notice in the very passage we read in 1 Peter, as he says that you've been called out of darkness into His light to proclaim His excellencies... And in the immediate context, he says to keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles so that they may be uh, see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Picturing the day where Jesus would come, that these would be at that day 
people who glorify God. So these excellencies are not just to be proclaimed here, but these excellencies are to be proclaimed in everything that we do. The church scattered so that we must manifest, and we're going to talk a lot about this in the part three, reaching out, but in this context, that you're manifesting your worship in every day of your life. You're manifesting your high regard for God's will and authority as you live out His Word. You're manifesting how you honor God by trusting Him in His goodness and control of all things. You show how you admire His character and how it's changed you, how it's molding you, and how you want to live out that same sacrificial love to others. This is the way you exalt Him, you see, in your life. So that every day you are fixed upon this, O Lord, Enable me to worship you today. Not just on Sunday, you know, coming together. Lord, help us to worship you today. Oh, Lord, every day, everything that I do, may my life be a constant praise to your name. May everything I do show how highly I regard you, how much I admire you, how much I trust you, how fantastic, how uh, glorious I think you are. You see, your very life is to be what Psalm 34, 3 says, Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt His name together. But your life is that aroma. The very, without any words, just think. Of course, we say these words, but just think without any words. Your life is saying, Oh, magnify the Lord with me. Come find out why I am what I am. That's the very thing Peter contemplates because he says... When people ask you for the hope that is in you, in chapter 3, verse 15, be ready to speak to them and tell them. You see, what is it they see? They see a hope. They see an energy and resilience. They see an ability to give yourself away to people when it doesn't seem like you could give yourself away to people. They see your hope in the midst of tragedy and difficulty. They see something generated in your life and they're drawn to it. You become amazingly, as, it's, as Paul talks to servants of all people, lowly servants in the Roman Empire. And he says, you adorn the doctrine of God. And I, that always puzzles me, you know, to think... Here's the doctrine of God. Here's me. Those two things are really far apart. Pure doctrine of God in my life. And yet, he does this. He says, I want your life to be an adornment. To beautify this. To beautify the word. And the reason it does is because you and all the mess of life are showing forth the greatness of your God who sustains you in the mess of life. The greatness of your God who gives you a a clear conscience because of forgiveness in Christ. Who gives you renewal and strength and change in your life. And even when you fail that you have hope. You have a God that loves you in the midst of it. So as Mike Cosper in this book says, when do we worship? Here's the question. When do we not worship? Right? 
Worship is not compartmentalized or confined. It is life with God. Life lived to God for His glory and for our pleasure. And so, as a scattered church, we worship Him. And of course, as a gathered church, we worship Him. We bring all of our struggles and our heartache and our longings and our pain and our failures and our victories and everything that we are as human beings, we bring them into the presence of God together to sing with the people of God, to be encouraged with the people of God, to encourage one another in Christ, to form this outpost of hope in a dying world, this fellowship of resurrected sinners whose presence in the world is a foretaste of the final kingdom. We proclaim His Word together. We feast upon His glory together. We read the Scriptures and sing to one another, remembering the Gospel together. And this is unique because here it's an encounter with the people of God, filled with the Spirit of God, as Cosper says, spurring one another along with the mission of God. Christ in me meets Christ in you. There's nothing like it. Is that what we think? There's, uh, now, many times it doesn't look that way as even Jacob begins uh, to, uh, began today. Many times it doesn't look that way, but that's the reality. And I want to leave you with this. It says in Hebrews 10 about Christ that he is not ashamed to call us brothers. And it quotes from Psalm 22... I will tell your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. And as you know, some some of you at least, that Psalm 22 begins with, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And it speaks of immense suffering on the part of the psalmist, which anticipates the actual suffering of Christ. But then after the suffering, he is actually there in the midst of his brothers singing praises to God. It is Jesus Christ who is here, leading us as the perfect man in the worship of God. Jesus Christ himself, on the basis of his own suffering and redemption, who has entered into the presence of God as our great high priest and gathers us with him to worship God together. He's the one who's, in, who's, who's worthy to enter it. He's the one who has borne the wrath of God. And with Him, we come into His presence. It is all, all of our praise, all of our prayers are an echo and an amen to the perfect worship offered by Jesus Christ. And in Brian Habig and Les Newsom's book, called The Enduring Community. He talks about being at a wedding where the young fella was down front waiting for his bride to come. And he said, it was amazing because he was in tears. He says, I thought his knees were going to buckle up, you know, right there. I thought he was going to collapse. And he said, some people would see that and they would turn it around and say, you know, that's how we should look to Christ. That's how we should look to Him and love Him. Now let us pray, right?
But they point out, no, it's the other way. We're the bride being brought down. He is the one weeping for joy at what he is able to have. That he has redeemed a people. They're his bride and they're his beloved. And he weeps over them. It says he rejoices over us with songs. That he can have us. That he can lead us into the worship of God. That we can taste the goodness that he tastes. That we can see the glory that he sees. That is what worship is. Scattered, we come together with the person of Jesus, through the person of Jesus Christ to worship our God. What a glorious life we have in Christ. Let us pray. Lord, we pray that you would apply your word to our hearts so that we would be people scattered or gathered who live to the worship of God, plant in our hearts, Lord, adoration and praise, a never-ending admiration for you, Lord, that simply grows and grows and consumes more and more of our hearts so that all of life is truly lived out in the presence of our God to his glory and honor, even in the most difficult of times that our hearts can be fixed upon the God who has given his son for us. Bless us, Lord, to that end we pray for your glory and honor. Amen.